Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. minutes at the top of the hour i ran from the radio studio to the garage to get a pair of jumper cables to get my car to jump the car of the 16 year old who obviously left something running in her car last night when she got home and of course it wouldn't start and so i'm a little breathless so we're uh there's not gonna be a lot of monologuing right now because if i were to try to monologue it would be utterly breathless so you monologue for a minute. You you wonderful person who thinks oh, listening to Carmen is such fun in the morning, except that Carmen is now completely out of breath, having now sprinted back so that I could be here. So like, good morning. Get, Carmen, I think the word, I was actually getting a bit concerned. You'd like to talk, you know, starting the show out with, you know, where in the word are you? And I was kind of, kind of thinking I should pull up the theme song from where in the world is Carmen Sandy, because where in the world were you? But at least, did you get the I'm car I'm so started? sorry. I'm so sorry, Paul. Yes, the children are off to school. Oh, good, good. So, <laughs> this Life is the joy. Is real, this, like this, right? This is this is the joy you have of having a home studio. <laughs> oh, okay, I just want to thank the Lord. I just want to thank the Lord for that exactly the time that it happened. Right, that I had four minutes. I want to thank the Lord that we had jumper cables. I want to thank the Lord that I knew how to use them, kind of. And, uh, and that the children are off on their way. So here you go. Woo! Praise Jesus. Okay, um, I'm going to have a conversation here in literally just a minute with Rob Renfro. Now, Rob is a pastor in the United Methodist Church. He has a book entitled Unfailing, Standing Strong on God's Promises in the Uncertainties of Life. But one of the things that Rob and I are also going to talk about is just the, the changing landscape in the United Methodist Church. They are about to proceed into what we all hope will be a much more well-organized and gracious, mm, I don't want to use the word schism, although I think that's the accurate theological term for what's going on, but the United Methodist Church is intending to divide itself up into uh, different denominations. And so we're going to have that conversation as well. So all of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. And I actually go back uh, in terms of our mutual efforts to renew particular mainline denominations, uh, representing evangelical efforts within the mainline to bring renewal. Um, Rob is also a pastor of adult discipleship at the Woodlands United Methodist Church in the Woodlands in the middle of Texas. Uh, He serves as president of Good News. It's the oldest and largest of the evangelical renewal movements within the United Methodist Church. And so He has a a really 
insightful view of what's happening from within the United Methodist Church, and we want to talk with him uh, about that as well. He is also uh, has also served as the board chair of the Confessing Movement um, within the UMC. So, Rob, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. I'm excited to be talking with you. So we um, we're officially talking about your book, uh, right. Unfailing, Standing Strong on God's Promises and the Uncertainties of Life. And so I want to start there, but um, but I also want to get into the conversation about what's going on in the UMC and maybe what people can expect in the Uh, in the weeks and months and years ahead, because I think that's going to be helpful as well. Um, This book is delightful. It's easy to digest. It uh, it unpacks eight key ways in which God will not fail you um, by looking at God's promises. So let's just talk about when when you think about the way in which an adult, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, not only grows in their faith, but gets to the place where we can stand in the faith. a huge part of that is understanding who God is and the character of God and the promises of God. And so I'm guessing that that's why you took the approach you took. Yeah, what you said there is so good. I mean, all of us find a place to stand in life. We stand on something that we think is going to be a firm foundation, something that we can trust. And being who we are, we so often lean upon ourselves, our wisdom, our abilities. Some people, they seem to trust their emotions when they're feeling good. They're on the top of the world. When they crater, those emotions um, give way, then they crash. And so we all have to find a place that we can stand that doesn't fail us. And like you said, the real place is the character of God. And one of the ways that we know that character is by what he has promised Um, that he has uh, given us to stand upon. So these uh, seven promises that we look at in uh, this book all come from God's Word, and like you say, they come out of his heart and out of his character. And the the eight words, which are promises, grace, peace, presence, guidance, power, strength, and love. I think there's a lot of people who would have expected you to start with love, but you start with grace. Yeah. um, Personally, I know how much I am dependent upon uh, the grace of God. And grace is one of the ways that God's love uh, works its way into our lives. And when we see ourselves in the light of who Jesus is, I, I think about the Apostle Paul when he compared himself to others uh, he was so certain that he was moving beyond others, that he was pleasing God by his righteousness, that he measured up very well. But then he caught that vision of Jesus, and he saw himself in the light of Christ. And all of that was uh, absolutely blown away. And this one who was so self-sufficient and who had all the credentials of a righteous man and a righteous life found himself humbled and having to depend on nothing but the grace and the mercy of God. So uh, for me, that's really the uh, beginning place. We understand that we need grace, and we discover this amazing grace that um, accepts us where we are, picks us up, and uh, then loves us and moves us forward. The book is Unfailing, Standing Strong on God's Promises in the Uncertainties of Life. Um, Rob, I, I actually found the cover very provocative. Um, I, uh, I I know that you you probably did not uh, conceive of the cover nor make the cover, but it's very provocative. Aching, Good. falling, suffering, losing, striving, failing. 
But then the word failing has become the word unfailing and leads to thriving, desiring, loving, forgiving, and living. Um, There is a process involved in discipleship. It is not something that happens in an instant. And it is something that throughout our lives is, is honed, developed, tested. And, and when, when the storms come, like, right, it's not a question of if, when the storms come, when people fail us, when uh, we're diagnosed with a disease, when something horrific happens to a person that we love or an institution of which we've been a part, um, there is, we, we find ourselves on what feels like shaky, uh, in shaky yeah. times, but we're not, but we can be people that are firmly planted standing on a rock. Yeah. We do not have to be people who are shaken by what right. is shaking those around us. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, Jesus gives us, I say in the book, a, a promise. Uh, we don't underline it and say, boy, I'll, I'll base my life on this, but it's right there in God's word. Uh, in this world, you will have trouble. That is a certainty. Life is hard. It's challenging. At some place, it breaks every one of us. And then the question is, how do we stand in the midst of the storms? How do we find a place that gives us the strength uh, to move forward? And and for many of us, honestly, you're you're right. I didn't choose the cover, but I do like where failing is in um, strong, bold, black capital letters, and then the word un. You know, really the gateway into the spiritual life, into the Christian life, is blessed are the poor in spirit. So when you come to the end of yourself, that's when you can have a new beginning with God. And many people, they go through these terrible, difficult times, and it seems like the worst moment of their lives, but actually it's the moment of their rebirth. It's the moment that gives them the life that they're really looking for. They just don't know it. So I I do like the way that uh, they put together that idea that failing leads to a new, better, stronger life, because I think that's right at the heart of the gospel. I think that is redemption. I mean, right? I mean, yeah. that is that is what we're getting at. Okay, um, yeah. when we come back, I'm going to ask you one more question about the book, and then I'd love to okay. take a pivot toward a conversation about what's happening in the United Methodist Church. For those of you who are reading the headlines today, there are uh, you know, there's news from a, a very uh, a pastor of a very large United Methodist congregation uh, near Kansas City who is predicting that some 7,500 churches um, will leave the United Methodist Church over um, the UMC's uh, commitment to God's design for uh, human life and sexuality and marriage, and the affirmation of the way God has created uh, us as male and female. Um, I'm going to ask Rob Renfro about the language of leaving, and and instead, what it sounds like is planned in the United Methodist Church, which is hopefully some sort of gracious um, departure from one another. I don't know how else to say that. That's the conversation we're going to have when we come back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Rob Renfro is my conversation partner. He is, among other things, now the author of Unfailing, Standing Strong on God's Promises in the Uncertainties of Life. He's a pastor in the United Methodist Church. Uh, he is the president of Good News, which is um, the largest evangelical renewal movement in the United Methodist Church. He has served as the board chair of the Confessing Movement and presently a board member of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Um, 
Rob and I have been in an ongoing conversation about uh, the the renewal of mainline denominational congregations um, for many, many years. And so it's a it's real pleasure and privilege to have you on the show today, Rob. Um, the book is excellent. I have one more book question, and that and that is this. Okay. One of the things I really appreciated about your approach, this is not a book about how Christians respond to grief, how Christians respond to loss, how Christians respond to um, financial distress, how Christians respond when their kids come out of the closet, how Christians respond uh, to racism, how Christians should vote, how Christians, right? This is a book about how we become people of the word in such a way that no matter what we face in life, we, um, we are not shaken. We understand that we are God's people standing on God's word, even in the midst of shifty, sad, um, disappointing days. Yeah. Well, you know, the premise of the book is uh, where Joshua looks at the end of his life and he's speaking to the Israelites. He's lived to be 110 years old. He's seen so much beginning all the way from time in bondage in Egypt to having to fight all kinds of battles. And uh, he's near the end of his life. He wants to leave the Israelites with some good word that will stay with them, hold them, move them forward. And he says, you know that all the good promises of God have not failed. Not one has failed. So the idea that um, we are going to be tested, we're going to face difficult battles in life, there's got to be something that gives us the strength that we need um, that keeps us from falling. And, and Joshua says it's the promises of God. It's the same idea where Jesus said that if you build your life upon my words, you know, when the rains come, the winds blow, uh, you will uh, stand. So, yeah, people people aren't – I don't think they're looking anymore quite for a how-to approach to life. That, that was very popular at some point. What people want now is something deeper, something that really takes them into the depths of who God is, takes us into his heart, and gives us a place to stand there. So that's what the book hopes to do, and it hopes to be very encouraging for people uh, who do need uh, that kind of place in their life. It's a great individual um, book, I mean, just to read as an individual, but it'd be an excellent, excellent book for um, a, a small group, a Bible study, a Sunday school class, a congregation. Uh, it's really, uh, it's um, it's easy to digest. It's not super long. It's obviously content rich. So, unfailing, standing strong on God's promises in the uncertainties of life. Um, you can get it everywhere books are sold. Rob Renfro is uh, is the author. Let's pivot to a conversation about the denomination of which you are a part, the United Methodist Church. Right. We all we all remember this uh, big meeting that took place in St. Right. Louis. Uh, you guys call it the General Conference, where the traditional plan or the affirmation uh, of, you know, what I would describe as God's design, not only for human beings, created male and female, but also for marriage as between a man and a woman. Um, the traditional plan, um, you know, won. It carried the day. Right. But the vote yep. was pretty narrow, and right. um, and we all, we, so we all remember that. Um, threats to leave always occur in every other denomination where this has happened in the United States of America, um, the conservatives have left because the liberals, quote unquote, won. In the United Methodist Church, you know, the, the conservatives, the traditionalists, quote unquote, won. Will the liberals leave? I, Carmen, this, is, this will be interesting to talk about because 
it's hard to predict the future. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Reverend Hamilton saying that we're going to lose these thousands of churches. What he's really saying is he thinks that when we meet again um, this next May, that those who want to change our sexual ethics will um, be successful, and that as a result of walking away from what the Bible uh, teaches regarding uh, marriage, um, that the conservatives will leave. Uh, if we wanted to leave uh, on those terms, we could have worked that out a long time ago. What we really believe is that we are, we're, we're two different tribes. There are those of us who hold to a classical understanding, the Christian faith, Orthodox Christian faith, biblical Christian faith. Um, and then there are those of us who, in, in our estimation, have been influenced by the culture. They, many of them are very fine people, Reverend Hamilton is, but in, on this issue, in our estimation, they've just walked away from what the Scriptures plainly teach. And so it's not really just an issue about sexual ethics. It's really an issue about the inspiration and the authority of the Bible, and that's simply something we can't compromise on. So what we've said is uh, we don't need any one group just to leave. What we need is an amicable, fair separation. So his, his, what he's projected, what you referenced, is the idea that they will carry the day. The vote was very close. They believe that they've elected more progressive delegates this time that will go uh, to Minneapolis in, in next May, and that they will win, and then we will basically be forced out. We're working with uh, partners who see things differently than we do, who are tired of this fight. Reverend Hamilton isn't. He's willing to go and fight again. People who followed what happened at our special general conference in St. Louis saw how ugly it was, how hurtful it was, um, and um, many of us on both sides don't want to do that again. So conversations are going on right now to try to create an amicable separation rather than one side being pushed out. So that's what we, um, some of us, have been reading about, um, are these ideas that there could be this amicable, uh, grace-filled, right. uh, you go yeah. your way. We, we, what we have are irreconcilable dif- differences, you know, at an institutional point in time. You go your way, we go ours. Right. Um, so just just know, Rob, that we are praying with you and for you, um, and we're, we're not only watching from the sidelines, we hope that we are good friends um, in the process as well. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for what you do every single day as a pastor. Um, thank you for what you do in serving the larger denomination, the larger body as well. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Carmen. I appreciate you too. That's Rob Renfro. You can check out the book Unfailing, Standing Strong on God's Promises in the Uncertainties of Life. You can find him at uh, at Good News. You can also find him um, at the Confessing Movement. Lots of places where you can find Rob Renfro out there today. He's really worth reading. All right, we'll be right back. So why in the world do I need to know anything about a California Consumer Privacy Act? I don't live in California. Uh, Well, on January 1st, 2020, the California Consumer Privacy Act is going to take effect. But the reach of that act um, is going to be much further than you and I might expect. And so to explain to us why this actually matters to all of us, 
um, uh, I'm going to have Jason Facker here. He um, he works with the with the ERLC, but his real like interest and passion, his total geeky nerdiness, is in the area of AI. And so the area of technology is his um, uh, is his realm of expertise. And so when we talk about things like Twitter or Facebook or Google or Apple, all of which are headquartered in California and all of which are services that we use, then that's why, uh, at least in part, this law matters to all of us. So he's going to explain it to us because actually January is just really not that far away. So up next, Jason Thacker here on Mornings with Carmen. Mom, Dad, it's never too early to start planning for the teen years. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When your child reaches the tween years, things are calm and easy, and you're like, hey, I'm getting the hang of this parenting thing. Hmm. Well, I hate to bust your bubble, but it's likely the calm before the storm. Sure, things are flowing smoothly now, but when your teen starts craving independence, he'll be spending more time away from home with folks you might not know. So don't get blindsided. Start updating your style now to prepare for the changes coming ahead. The teen years can be bumpy, but they can be fantastic too. So don't fall asleep at the controls because the storm clouds are looming. And your teen needs an alert pilot to navigate the turbulence ahead. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. take long so at 704 I shared with you all and because my computer screen is up and my phone is sitting right here I suspect I shared with more than just you who are listening uh, on the radio Uh, I shared that you know we had this uh, little family emergency that there was a dead battery that I had to run out from the studio in the four minutes that I had to jump a battery for a teenager in order that she could get off to school I already have ads for batteries car batteries I haven't ever seen a car battery ad on my social media feed before uh, today, and uh, they're already there. So that did not take long to talk with us about that and why I'm creeped out by it is Jason Thacker. Jason, welcome. Thank you, Carmen. It's good to be with you this morning. Now, I know you didn't think you were talking about that, but um, <laughs> when we talk about consumer protection and we talk about privacy, and let me remind people, I actually introduced you before you came on, but Jason Thacker serves as the Creative Director, Associate Research Fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. His role as Creative Director uh, is that he oversees their creative projects. Um, he also has a forthcoming book on the age of AI, artificial intelligence and the future of humanity. That doesn't come out until March. We can hardly wait. Um, and so this intersection of technology and and gosh, life, that's really where you spend a lot of your time um, thinking and, and helping us think. So, Jason, when we talk about big data, when we talk about um, Twitter and Facebook and Google and Apple, um, I think increasingly about LinkedIn, places where people post personal information, um, that is no longer our information once it's out there. 
the reason I'm entering this conversation in this direction is because when I when I tell people you and I are going to talk about a, a California law, they're going to glaze over and they're not going to think that matters to them. And so I want to make them care before we tell them what we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. The reality is, is it's not just as of late that data has been captured and used. It's This is the history of technology. Anytime that you use a piece of technology from the earliest forms of the Internet uh, to smartphones and social media apps today, everything we do online is tracked and stored in some capacity. Now, in the past, it hasn't been we haven't been able to use it. Um, but now the companies are being able to use this data to, one, provide better services to us, more tailored services to us. So you're not just seeing ads for cat food if you don't have cats. They're actually seeing car battery ads because you were using that earlier. So it, things are becoming more tailored and personalized. But then also there's kind of an increasing concern about what companies know about us, uh, what they know about us, how they're using that, how they're using that to make money for themselves and to sell us ads and kind of tailor this experience. And it, it rightfully freaks um, some people out. Of, what do these companies know about me? What, how are they using it? I'm utterly transparent. I I don't <laughs> just because I feel like you know uh, so much of uh, of what I do is public anyway. So I would be the one person who's probably not trying to hide anything. And yet, my right to my own privacy is it remains important to me. And so, if somebody is thinking about the way that they, as a consumer, and we're going to use the word consumer here, acknowledging that that doesn't mean you necessarily pay for something. It means you use something. So just because you're not paying for Twitter or paying for Facebook or paying for Gmail or LinkedIn, that doesn't mean you're not a consumer in this circle of concern related to these companies, which are based in California. And therefore, that's my segue into this California law that goes into effect in January. So tell us about the law. The companies I just named are all based there. Obviously, many others are as well. Yeah, so uh, on January 1st of 2020, so just a few months from now, the California Consumer Privacy Act, which sounds like it's going to be this hyper-specific local thing to just California, but this Privacy Act is going to take effect. The reality is it's actually going to affect all of us for two reasons. One, we don't have a federal privacy law as strong or as intense as the California Consumer Privacy Act. So not only is it going to become the de facto law of the land just because we don't have any other type of uh, privacy law, but we also – most of the companies that are – we use like Twitter, Facebook, um, Google, all these type of companies, most of them are based out of the California region. So what's going to happen is because of the enormous cost for them to upgrade their systems in order to provide this level of transparency that the law requires – they're not going to offer two different services to two, diff to two different uh, constituents, those who live in Tennessee or in New York or in Wisconsin, as opposed to some different service offerings in California. That just becomes way too expensive. And so that's one reason they're going to actually provide this protection to all consumers within the United States. But then also, these companies are based in California, so they're actually accountable to this law. And so if you have a California resident who isn't able to uh, receive their data or see what a company has on them or request that it be deleted, they can be open for different lawsuits. And the reality is we don't actually know how this law is going to play out. One, because the law isn't hyper-specific about these penalties. But two, we don't know what real impact this is going to have on technology companies and the services they offer us. 
Can I ask you a question about cookies? Yeah. Okay. What is a cookie? And when I click on the thing that says I'm allowing cookies, what am I doing? Essentially, a cookie is a, a bit of data or um, a small piece of as a byte that's put onto your computer that helps that website to remember you. So often when you go to clear your history or website data, what you're doing is you're clearing the things that you've stored, whether it's a password or a username. But then also the cookie can be used to track. It's kind of like a little tracking bite. So that allows companies to say, okay, Carmen just Googled car batteries this morning. But then when you get on Facebook, you're able to, you're getting Facebook ads for car batteries because this cookie is a tracking pixel. And all it does is allow um, them to tailor that experience. And there's a lot of benefits to this. Um, this isn't something that's brand new that just came out that's really scaring a lot of people that's some manipulative use of technology. This cookie technology is tracking pixels. They really do serve consumers well by tailoring that experience, providing the services that we need, and uh, kind of remembering things about us. But there's the kind of the flip side of that is that things are remembered about us. Pieces of data are stored about us. And that's where the California Consumer Privacy Act really gets at is what do these companies know? And that should be a level of transparency with the consumer. But then also you should be able to see it, delete it. You should be able to forbid the sale of, because often Google takes these pieces of data uh, from across thousands and thousands and thousands of consumers, and they use a process through algorithmic um, data processing that allows them to produce a, a predictive result that says most people, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds are most likely going to do this if they live in this region of uh, the country, and they take that and sell that predictive product to advertisers so that they can tailor ads uh, that are going to be more likely to turn into profits. Okay, so in uh, Jason's article, which you can read, posted at ERLC.com in the resource library, which is an explainer of this California Consumer Privacy Act, um, it says the six major components are that it will give the users ability to, one, know what data has been collected on them, two, know if this data has been sold and to whom, three, say no to the sale of the data, four, access the personal their own personal data, five, request the deletion of this data, and six, not to be discriminated against for exercising these particular rights. Jason Thacker and I are going to continue this conversation uh, more in just a moment here on Mornings with Carmen. I'm smelling coffee, birds are singing just outside. Continuing my conversation with Jason Thacker, um, we're talking specifically about a piece he has posted at ERLC.com entitled Explainer, the California Consumer Privacy Act and how it affects you. Um, but Jason is working on a book about artificial intelligence. And so um, can we pivot and just have an AI conversation? Love it. Okay, so let's just start with the most basic. Okay, what uh, what is AI? When that when I hear that term used, what should I be thinking? Yeah, it's essentially a computer or uh, a computer that exhibits certain type of intelligent behavior. So not all computer technology is artificial intelligence. It's artificial computers that are able to think or process or produce results. Um, so it could be something like uh, I don't want to say it too loud because all of the devices in my 
house will actually light up. Um, but when you say Siri or Google Home or Alexa, um, we have kind of become used to having these devices always listening. But what they're doing is speech recognition, facial recognition, um, a lot of different tailoring um, type of products. What it is is a computer that's able to exhibit certain intelligent behaviors. So deduce that you're more likely to do this or this is what you're saying or this is what's in this image without the use of a human. There, a human isn't directly involved in that decision making. Okay, so when when I hear the word intelligence, I think human being. I don't think uh, to myself, what is my computer thinking about this? What is my phone thinking about this? Because I I consider humans as uniquely able to think. And so what's happening when um, a device has been engineered to aggregate data it's making a prediction am i am i am i kind of tracking here yeah, you're it's exactly making right. it's making a prediction based on my past behavior what it thinks it knows about me because of where i live it's making it's it's making a lot of assumptions and it's making a lot of uh of of predictions based on those assumptions it's not actually thinking and it depends on how you define thinking. Often we define intelligence as what humans exhibit, the ability to reason and to think. And that's true. But reality is, is that a dog thinks. The dog thinks, mm. I'm hungry, so I'm going to go eat. So we do see a level of intelligence, and it's a sliding scale. Humans are obviously the crowning jewel of all of creation. We're the only piece of creation made in the image of God. And that's very, very important when we're talking about artificial intelligence, because often what we do is we try to personify these devices, whether to give them names or call them he or she, or it's doing this, or it's thinking this. In reality, it's processing. It's, it's a math formula, very, very advanced, hyper-specific, and actually really good. Often these devices are able to do things that just a few years ago seemed impossible for a computer to do, but they're able to do them now. So it could be as simple as a Nest thermostat automatically adjusting the temperature when I get home because it knows I like to sleep in, when it's cold. I'd rather not be sweating when I sleep. So it automatically changes the temperature based on my past activity and based on what it thinks I want. It's not always perfect, but what it does is it is thinking and it's always learning. It's always growing and becoming better at what it's called to do. Unlike some of us who are not always growing and becoming better at what we're called to do. Um, I do think there are just so, so many conversations that are uh, important for Christians to have in this in this particular space. What are some of the questions and conversations that you hope Christians are considering when we're when we're thinking about AI, when we're thinking about bringing it into our homes, when we're thinking about giving our kids access to smart devices. What are some of the questions and conversations you would hope we are having as Christian uh, individuals and parents? Well, first and foremost, there's a lot of level of discernment of what type of technology. It doesn't have to be just artificial intelligence. It can be any array of technology. But reality is, is most technology these days, almost everything that's considered smart um, is actually run and driven by a form of artificial intelligence. And many different areas of our society have been. It's not just entertainment. It's not just personal computing. It's from our banking systems, our energy systems, um, a lot of 
the things that deal with public policy and defense are driven in large part or undergirded by artificial intelligence. But the way I like to think about it is when it comes to how Christians should think about artificial intelligence, reality is, is that AI isn't causing us to ask really new questions in light of this new technology. It's causing us to ask old questions, questions that Christian the Christian church has dealt with and thought through and mulled over for thousands of years is what does it mean to be human? Often we see these type of these articles that have come out where there's going to be massive automation and use of AI that's going to lead to job loss or self-driving cars and all of this kind of new age kind of technology that's really going to disrupt our society. But there's this hype of, well, what, what happens if an AI wakes up? What if we have killer robots? Well, the, those are good questions and we should ask them, but fundamentally we need to ask who is God who are we as created in his image and what makes us unique? And then how should we be using technology with wisdom? The reality is, is that we're going to use technology. You are already using technology and it's just going to be increasingly so. So it's not a question of, do I adopt this or reject this? It's more of a, how do I use this with wisdom? And I write about in my book and a lot of the work that I do is we should be thinking through an, an idea of, human dignity is that humans are distinct and uniquely created in God's image as opposed to anything else in creation. So it doesn't matter how advanced an AI system becomes any time in the future, humanity is always going to be distinct and unique and needs to be prized and valued above all things. Jason, we can hardly wait for the book to come out. So um, we look forward to talking with you again in the lead up to the release of the AI book in March. Remind us of the title. The Age of AI, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. I love it. I love it in a, already. The Age of AI. I'm writing it down. All right, Jason Thacker, thank you so much. You guys can follow Jason on Twitter at Jason Thacker. You can also find him at ERLC.com. We'll be right back. So I was asked last night at my um, community group meeting, like, what is uh, what are the questions I ask myself or what are the considerations that I take into account before I go on the radio every day? And I said, oh, well, that's really simple because I have this like little threefold question that I'm always asking. And the first is, is it the truth? Because I want to be a person of truth and I want to be a purveyor of the truth. Uh, I certainly don't want to. Um, ever be even flirting with the edges of what might not be true, like, right? So is it the truth? Does it glorify God? Is it glorifying God? Because if it's true, and yet God's not going to be glorified by my, by my putting it out there on the airwaves, then I'm not going to say it. We're not going to talk about it. There is some subject matter that I do avoid um, because I recognize not only who's listening, but the responsibility that we have as people of God to not only speak truth, but to speak beauty into the world that he so loves. So is it the truth? Is it glorifying to God? Um, and then is it edifying to people? Is it actually going to um, build people up? Is it actually going to strengthen us in uh, in our walk of faith today? Is it actually going to equip and empower us to um, not only understand who we are, but live as God's agents of grace in the world that he so loves? So there you go. Is it the truth? <clears throat> Excuse me. Is it glorifying to God? Is it edifying to people? Um, if so, we're probably going to talk about it right here on Mornings with Carmen. Love to get your feedback. You can always text us at 877-933-2484 or email me, carmen at myfaithradio.com. Have a great day and God bless.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.